0: rated my papers really well. But uh, he taught Old Testament when I was in seminary. This was his book and uh, just a a phenomenal teacher, really made the Old Testament come alive. I was so excited coming out of his Old Testament class that I took him for Hebrew when it came time to do that. And I was glad I did because, boy, Hebrew can be quite a challenge. It it makes a huge difference having a good professor. But he walks through, I mentioned last week, uh, I think several weeks, that these minor prophets, as they're called, not minor in significance, but just the length of their books. In the Jewish canon, they make up one book of the Bible. We, we've we got them as 12. They just have it as one, and they call it the book of the 12. And so he walks through just helping you understand because you're like, okay, these guys are all writing from overlapping time periods. Who are they talking to? This one's of this nation. This one's over here. How do they all fit together? And if you've already got the major prophets of Isaiah, uh, you know Jeremiah, those guys who have written Ezekiel, then why do you need the minor prophets to Come in and say anything at all. And so it, it was a good summation that he gave on understanding the book of the Twelve. These guys walk through and they underscore the prophetic uh, format of delivering messages. They, they uh, announce sin, they denounce the sin of people, they pronounce punishment that's coming, and then they speak of restoration that is coming from God. And so they do that in some unique and creative ways. They also fill in some uh, historical type information that you don't get from the major prophets. You can see the structure of the books going from sin to punishment, then to the restoration that's there. You see the word pictures, uh, a little bit about the prophets themselves and some of their personalities and their temperaments coming out. Uh, you you get some information about Israel. And so I just put all that stuff in there. This is a summation right out of his book, so nothing new or creative. But looking at the theological order, that's what I wanted you to see tonight, that the first six books have dealt with sin. The focus is on denouncing sin, be it Israel's sin, be it the nations. It's a focus on God does not tolerate sin. That's he... He denounces it. He stands against it. Then the punishment section begins tonight. Nahum is the first prophet to begin uh, speaking of punishment and how that's going to come. So we'll pick that up. And then the last three bring out this picture of restoration. And then in our canon, and it's not the same in in the Hebrew canon, but in our canon, that's the end of it. It kind of stops there. There's the intertestamental period where there's silence, where there's nothing heard from God. Then we roll into the book of Matthew, picking up on the genealogy of Christ. So I just want to give that to you i should have done that several weeks ago i didn't but better late than never is what they say right something like that okay let's talk about nahum Again, beginning the punishment section here, uh, it's a pretty interesting approach. Uh, He basically names and identifies and speaks a punishment toward the biggest, strongest, ugliest, meanest nation uh, on on the scene at that time. He denounces them, what's taken place, talks of their punishment. And so kind of the message, the shot that's sent out is, okay, if the big boy's gonna fall and if there's gonna be punishment for him, for them, then nobody's safe. When I was in seminary, uh, one of my professors told us, he said, guys, he said, if you have to swallow a frog, do it first thing in the morning. (laughs) Why? Just to get it over with. (laughs) He said, if you have to swallow, what he was saying is, when you got those tasks and you're like, oh, I don't want to do this. He's like, do it, get it over with, finish it. So that, because it's always in your mind. Oh, and you're thinking about that, the dread of why you don't have to do it. You put it off, you put it off. He said, if you got to swallow a frog, do it first thing in the morning and get it over with. Well, that's, you know, Nahum's approach here is, let, let's go, you know, just imagine the playground bully. You got that, that group of the, the bullies. Go find the ringleader you know, settle the score with him, show him you're not afraid of him. When you, when you deal with the ringleader, everybody else falls in line. And so Nahum delivers a very pointed message to a nation. It was a wicked, evil nation. And so then the reverberations are, wow, if God's going to punish and deal with them, is Israel going to be safe? You know What's going to be their status? Well, they, if they repent and turn from their sins, God's character, his nature, which all of the even minor prophets underscore, will relent and there's grace and there's mercy. But if not, then if God won't spare punishment of this nation, then he's not going to spare the punishment of his people who know better and who should know better. So that's uh, kind of the, the setup in Nahum's book. It's, his name means comfort or consolation, and his name is actually a shortened form of Nehemiah. And when I say that, you go, okay, I can see Nehemiah and then Nahum. They, they look very similar, even in our English language of that. Uh, Nehemiah's name meant comfort of Yahweh, and so uh, Nahum's name means comfort or consolation, which is an important message for the people that, the, that it's delivered to. Historically, we can date it. He references in the past tense the fall of Thebes, which happened in about 663 BC, and he speaks kind of forward-looking to the fall of Nineveh. When uh, Nineveh fell to the Babylonians, that happened in 612, and so somewhere between that 663, you know, he referred to that past tense, but looking forward to Nineveh in that window, it's likely thought that it was even somewhere maybe 630s, around 626 is when the last great, powerful Assyrian ruler and I, if I could see his name, I wouldn't even be able to say Asher Benapal or something like that. He, he kind of, his reign ended about 626, and Assyria took a huge nosedive in influence and scope and, and all of that. And so probably before that even was when he spoke. But it's interesting to note and kind of think about that, uh, that geographic influence. And I have recommended this, and I'm going to go ahead and do that once again. If you have not picked up the book, The Insanity of God, there's the cover of it. Just the insanity of God. Um, it is phenomenal. I don't have a hard copy. This is just it. Gary let me read a few things out of this last month. I did it in a message, and I picked it up, got started. I told you last week, I cannot put it down. I mean, it's just I'm stealing away every minute I can to, to read and go through it. It's such an amazing book. I've started uh, Shelly's into it. I've, I've gotten her, her a copy, so she's reading that as well, and I'm reading through it with both of my children, with Caleb and Anna. I'm letting Caleb read it. He's making notes and we're talking about it and I'm sitting with Anna I'm reading a section letting her read a section we're walking through and I'm having to interpret some stuff for her because it's speaking of you know wars in Somalia and describing you know destruction persecution things like that so I've got to interpret a little bit but I'm doing that because there is there are so many incredible messages in this book about prayer about faithfulness and obedience to God, about persecution that believers around the world face that we in America don't face. Uh, just the lessons are so rich. There was a point last week I ha- I mean I put the book down. I was glad I wasn't reading it the doctor's office like I had been before. I mean I was just weeping. I, I could it was like I, it took me half an hour to like get my composure back from this. I was an absolute wreck reading through this book, and it, it's just so many amazing things. And I say this, one of the things that he does in the book is he starts interviewing believers in countries where where persecution is happening Where people are suffering for their faith in Christ And he's trying to get Lessons and information from them Of how they survive persecution That he, and I've not finished the story So I don't know what he's going to do with it yet But his heart is in Somalia Where people are dealing with persecution from Muslims And people are dying for their faith And so people that he knew and was connected with Were killed because they were associated with him And so his thing is How can you be a strong believer in persecution And the Lord revealed to him Go and speak to believers in countries like former Russia, in the the countries in Eastern Europe uh, that were there. He's in where I'm at right now. He's in China conducting uh, interviews with believers in the underground church, and so he's kind of gathering this information. But but here's the lesson. Here's the takeaway. As you think about and you look at the idea and the thought from Nahum about countries that fall and decline. Assyria was a bully. They were the predominant world power, and then what happens to Assyria? They fell and were overrun by the Babylonians and the Babylonians were the world power and then what happened to them? They fell, and who? the Persians came in. So we, we've talked through all this. And so then you follow by the, the Greeks and the Romans, and there, have you ever noticed that there's this cycle of world powers and dominance that happens? Going back and looking some, and I remember reading, uh, it's been a, been a long, long time, but I'm, I'm tying all this back in saying, I need oh, God track with me for just a minute, that you look at the history of nations and world powers, and there's a window for all of them. I mean, nobody's been around for three, four, five thousand 5,000 years as a dominant world power. You're like, well, what happens in that? Very often, if you notice, the decline comes not when they're aggressively pursuing countries, not when they're having to forge new lands and new areas. The decline starts during peace when there's comfort, when they get complacent and they can settle in, that's when the decline starts. And where does it start? Inside. It's not that they necessarily get overran by somebody on the outside, it's they allow the things inside to weaken them so that the outside things begin to deteriorate and and, and cause them to grow weak. You're like, okay, you have just gone this amazing thing. In the insanity of God, Nick Ripken is talking with individuals in the former, uh, in, in Russia, the former USSR. And it's about a decade after they started to relent and not as actively persecute believers. And he tells just some absolute hair-raising, gut-wrenching stories about leaders and the suffering they went through. And the years they spent in prison for their faith under communist Russia. Some amazing stories about how their family was provided for. But then he interviews some younger believers after 10 years of somewhat more open freedom to be able to serve Christ. And you know what he said that he discovered by their own admission, their faith wasn't as strong as real, as powerful in their life as it was for the generation of their fathers and their grandfathers. And he gave the anecdote that during the uh, the communist Russia time, they all these different families and house churches and communities wanted their teenagers to get together because they realized they weren't they didn't want them to marry unbelievers and so they really kind of planned a massive teen convention in moscow partly as like a dating service for them to meet you know, young, godly Christian teens and know that there were more. So they got together, and of course, you know, this many teenagers draw attention, and so the government's watching and all this. They're still very bold in what they do, but they, didn't, they couldn't teach seminars and do things, and so they gave them challenges and games. One of the things they had them do was they broke them up into groups and said, We want you, from memory, because there weren't copies of the Bible, they didn't have studies, they said, We want you, from memory, to recreate as much of the Gospels as you can. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they said that over the course of three or four days, those students from memory recreated all but less than about 5% of all four Gospels from memory. And so they're sharing the story with the guy who's in in the, the newer, more free area, and he asks about Bible reading and study and strength, and the guy's like, we don't read our Bible as much anymore. Because now we have copies and it's made available. And he's admitting that our hunger for the Bible like that is just not as strong now that our persecution has ended. And that got me thinking about this place where I live called America. And we talk about, you know, hundreds of years of span and when things start and principles and values are are tried and true and we're focused and we're intent on those and then we kind of go lax and and the deterioration begins Where? on the inside and I think about where we are and what we're watching and things that we're seeing and I read Nahum's message and I was like oh my word how timely these these warnings and, and the prophetic nature to remind us to come to God and to be focused on Him and, and, and to stand for Him even when the world around us is very different, very antagonistic toward those things. So that, the, the date and the timing of Nahum is incredible when you recognize how these trends play out on a national scale. And that's what his message is, is a message to a nation. We don't know much about Nahum. Even the hometown that's mentioned in here, nobody really knows where that is. It's thought to be, with greater certainty, but it's still speculation, in Judah, the southern kingdom. And that's, that's helpful for the people in Judah to remember, because if you remember Assyria's uh, effort here coming into Israel, they took over Israel, the northern country, and then started into Judah. And they got all the way to Jerusalem, then Sennacherib had the the problem back home and got called away God spared Jerusalem and so they pulled out but the people in Judah were worried they were afraid. What's going to happen now? They were here. It's probably just a matter of time until they come back. So the idea of him being in Judah, delivering this message of hope to them uh, would be very significant. The purpose of Nahum is very uh, simple. It highlights God's concern over sin by punishing Nineveh, while at the same time it offers rays of hope for the faithful remnant uh, who are in idolatrous Judah as to God's goodness, his patience, his strength, and his power to restore. So let's look at a couple of these things based for, uh, just from the book itself if you want to turn there to the book of Nahum it is somewhere in the latter part of the Old Testament let me find it yeah you got to be looking for it if you're finding it uh, it's on page 782 <laughs> <laughs> sorry <I'm fearful>. sorry <laughs> you would it, it would be true they do? Oh, that's right. Actually, my Bible matches the Pew Bibles. So mine is the exact same when I look at it. So if I call that out, then you know it's in the Pew Bibles there. A couple of key verses here. Uh, look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. So it's pretty interesting that a book about punishment, he's talking about God's character his, his grace. Uh, he's talking about his, his uh, being slow to anger and great in power. So that's a positive attribute of God that he describes. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The idea we've spoken of several times of a remnant. God speaking to the faithful few, letting them know about this refuge. You've got a warring army, an entire nation trying to over run you, whose armies look like ants coming over the hill, boy, doesn't the thought of being able to take refuge in a God who a few verses earlier was spoken of in power, doesn't that kind of give you some comfort, some strength? You want to be able to to find refuge in him. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 14, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile this is God's message to the Assyrians we'll pick back up on on them and their what happens with them in just a minute but verse 15 behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news that verse sound familiar at all yeah yeah, yeah. so we'll, we'll pick that up here in just a little bit Who publishes peace? Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So it goes from this description of what's going to happen to this wicked, vile people, as God calls them, to this picture of hope that there's good news coming for Judah, for the believers, those who are true to God in that place. Chapter 2. Verse 13 Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. A reference to their warriors who had accomplished so much for them. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. So God's stern warning as to what's going to happen. Chapter 3 verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. So just that that reminder that you have gone and you have uh, perpetuated yourself and you have overrun other persons and now when your destruction comes, they will clap. They will applaud. They will be glad that you have fallen. excuse me <laughs> what's going on but um, some pretty stern words and kind of doesn't sound very kind <laughs> you know, the, that you're celebrating the destruction of, of someone else and um, we'll pick that up here in just a minute but themes in theology, we're reminded that God punishes because of sin. God doesn't do it out of personal vindictiveness, that he gets angry and he gets upset, so he just lashes out in anger, whether it's a justified or unjustified anger. Uh, I don't know about you guys, just you know, confessional here. My children, we, we try to discipline our kids, and I try to always do. It always interests me that the, the parenting books you read say, never spank in anger. So we try to smile as we spank, you know, our children at that point. They're like, hey, come here, honey, you know. I'm like, what do you mean? So, but I, I see what they're saying. <laughs> I don't know. I was, I always thought that was kind of odd. But um, the the point being in that that you know, I'm not above having had a bad day elsewhere, and I come home and I'm grumpy, and my kids or my wife. Kind of get the brunt of some anger and some frustration and some pent up things that they really didn 't deserve and didn 't do anything that's I, I can do that because i 'm human and I am less than perfect in my emotions and and in my relationships god doesn 't do that I mean his anger is never just a random well, why did that come you know to happen when God punishes it is because of sin. And generally, very often, as we saw from the first part of this book as Nahum starts off, God is slow to anger. He is good, it says. He's a refuge in time of trouble. I mean, it praises the attributes of God and his patience and his grace and his tolerance of people and their sin for a season. But there comes a time when God does deal with sin. And when he does, part of his character and nature, he's slow to anger, he's patient, he's good. We see the prophets speak of all these things, but you know what? God is just. And when he punishes sin, he is just as godly, he is just as right, he is just as loving in pouring out that punishment As when he's showing grace and patience and mercy and tolerance and uh, so their punishment comes as a result of their sin against God by uh, worshiping idols by oppressing other countries so God they opposed God therefore God stood against them speaks of their army collapsing their city being looted Uh, God just speaks of utter destruction uh, because of how they have treated other nations This also shows us God's victory uh, over sin and his power in that. There are individuals, I read a couple different articles and and some things that people said that Nahum, uh, some really didn't want his book included in the Bible because they said the fact that he speaks of rejoicing over the death of the wicked. And there's almost a celebratory tone in his writings about the fact that Assyria has fallen. They're like, well, that's not very godly. That's not very loving of a prophet who represents God to to speak in some glowing terms about the destruction of wicked people. But again, remember that God's justice is part of his character, part of his nature. It's also a part of his will. And also remember, as you look through, we've talked about this on a number of occasions, but it's another good point to remind us that the writers of scripture under the direction and the influence of the Holy Spirit were still people who brought people tendencies and brought people uh, expressions of things to their writings of the messages and and the words that God delivered to them. And so uh, part of being a a human being is to have emotions, right? We have emotions and the Bible speaks of emotions, talks of positive emotions, negative emotions, keeping our emotions in check. They're not in the driver's seat of who we are or of our relationship with God but they are a part of who we of who we are and so when we see things in scripture that uh, we see some of the personality, the temperament that comes through in people it reminds us of the authenticity of the biblical writers. That they were real people That God used and inspired to accomplish his purposes We see this through the Gospels you know, We see Peter you know, blurting stuff out And we, we see the different traits and characteristics of them come through And so you know, as we think about that They express this stuff But then we think about okay, When you are dealing with, with evil persons Whose evil and sinful ways have overflown And, and served to uh, bring great heartache and pain and suffering to other people, what is the natural human emotion when punishment happens, when justice is there? There, There's some elation, there's some relief that comes with that. Again, it's not a celebratory of, look what happened there, but think about, I mean, the, the death of Hitler. You know the the death of Stalin. You're thinking of Osama bin Laden and this, the 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 sadness that's there. I mean, you know what what is our response in the death of individuals such as that who cause such great pain, such great suffering and agony? It shouldn't be a celebration of you know going out and shooting fireworks off, but there's a sense of justice. And it gives us, as God's people, uh, a reminder that God is just. And that regardless of what may happen to a person, whether they find their justice here on earth through a system, uh, through their life being taken, that ultimately and finally one day we stand before God and His justice is perfect and final and is eternal in that moment and in that time. And to remember who... He is delivering this message about their destruction. Have you heard anything about the Assyrians in recent weeks? Were you here a couple of weeks ago when Robbie talked about Assyria and, and their capital city of Nineveh and the huge city. He talked about their, their pain and their torture of persons. He showed the picture of the guy in the sand, you know, buried up to his neck, and spoke about, you know, uh, propping, keeping their tongue out so they, they couldn't even, you know, produce saliva in their mouth. If. He, he, it is hard. I don't even know that our minds in modern-day Western America can grasp the, the vile, wicked nature and the torturous ways of the Assyrian people. I mean, it is little wonder that other nations would clap and celebrate when these individuals were destroyed. I mean, they would take and they would hang their, uh, their enemies, the people they had killed, from poles and carry them around as trophies. In some of their tents, writings uh, have recorded for us found in their tents human skins stuck against the wall, just like animal skins. You know, you got, a, you got a deer head mounted and there might be a human being, you know, right next to it kind of thing. I mean, they celebrated the destruction, the maiming and the mutilation, the accounts of what they did to leaders of opposing nations and how they tortured and brutalized them before finally executing them. I mean, they saw it to humiliate people, not just kill people. They uprooted entire populations and they would intentionally divide families and send them to the far reaches of their nation and the areas that they were conquering in order to separate them and and just inflict more pain and more torture and more agony. And so these are the individuals that, that we're talking about. And remember, here's the other part about this picture of Assyria. These were the people that we're dealing with. Jonah went and delivered a message telling them to repent and what happened? They repented. They, repented. they turned and what did God do? He relented. Now if you go back and remember timeline, Jonah in about seven sixty, seven fifty BC, somewhere in that window. When did I say Nahum was delivering his message? Six six sixty to six twelve somewhere in there, a hundred a hundred and fifty years later, he's back, delivering this message. Guess what the Assyrians did after Jonah's message and after being spared in the city of Nineveh. They went back to their old ways. They went back to that sin again and say, wow, God would destroy this nation. He gave them a reprieve through Jonah's message and back to their sinfulness. Therefore, God brings and God punishes and God ultimately has the victory over their sin. Uh, I love how one commentator put it. I think I put this quote in your notes. God's justice is always right and sure. Should he choose to grant mercy for a time, that good gift will not compromise the Lord's ultimate sense of justice for all in the end. And so that choosing to relent uh, for a time, we see exercised out. We see God's unrelenting grace. Flip back to Second Chronicles. Not only uh, is part of his message to Assyria, forgot where we're at, but... Also, understand the context and the time based on the reign and rule of kings in Judah as to what was taking place. In his own country, it's not that Nahum is delivering a message about the the evil Assyrians who are not following God and who are being unfaithful and who are being ungodly. He's delivering that message to them, and things are hunky-dory at home. You know, things are fine, things are good in Judah. Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse one. Manasseh was twelve years old when he began to reign, and he reigned fifty-five years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals, and made Asherahs, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. So this isn't a good kickstart for Manasseh, right? He's young when he started. His dad had cleansed the nation. Back to worshiping, serving God only, he brings back in the false gods. Step further is setting up the altars to these false gods in the temple. Set aside for the worship of the one true God. Not a great direction for young Manasseh. Verse 5. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And used fortune telling and omens and sorcery. And dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. Provoking him to anger so he went on just above and beyond just the worship but to sacrificing his sons human sacrifice of his own children to these false gods and he sought mediums and spiritists and you know all these sort of things and he provoked the lord's anger well guess what period of time manasseh lived in the time of Nahum. This is the context. This is the environment that Nahum comes and delivers his message. This is what's taking place in Judah under Manasseh. Now, I'm not going to read it, and probably that's a bad thing to just give you all the bad stuff and not the good stuff, but, but nonetheless, the Assyrians come in, and it says they take him out with hooks. The Assyrians would, would hook, like fish hooks with, with big clamps on them. They're, uh, they're captured enemies and, and carry and march them great distances Manasseh becomes a victim and it says with hooks they led him astray while he was in captivity and going through the suffering at the hands of the Assyrians, remember get this picture of who these people are, he calls out to God, is repentant is sorrowful and it says that God heard his plea and God was moved because of his plea and the genuine true nature of repentance in his heart, God restores him back to king, and he comes in and he cleans house. He gets rid of all that stuff, and he goes back to focus of worshiping God only. Now, that didn't translate back out into the province areas. They still continued to have some idolatry there, but even then, the little idols they had set up, they began to worship the Lord because of his example. So there's a major transformation that happens for Manasseh, and so Nahum is delivering this message in the context of these things in this dark, dark time shows of a prophet whose name is what comfort or consolation what is the comfort what is the consolation of God's people it's that God will deliver God will restore God will bring about forgiveness and protection for his remnant which brings to number four a reminder to do what's right period God speaks to Nahum. He speaks to the remnant, those who are trying to be faithful in the midst of what's taking place in Judah at the hands of the Assyrians. And they were, I mean, you just think about being overwhelmed with evil everywhere you go. What do you do in that? It's so easy to get sucked into and to become a part of those things. But the call to God's people is to always remain faithful, remain true to him, and trust him. Again, it's fresh in my mind, it, it, but it's such a, a powerful thing. When you look at the, and read through this insanity of God, and he talks about the stand that believers took for Christ in the face of the things that were set before them and the threats uh, and the, the absolute, I mean, just heinous torture things that were taking place and how they stood firm in that and just expected it. <laughs> in in his uh, this last chapter I'm in, he's in China, and he says he's meeting with some believers there, and he said this one guy's very excited. He's very energetic. He's very passionate about his faith and and Christ and all that he's, uh, you know, he just speaking just such energy about who Jesus is and what he does and what he wants to do. And so he talks, and he said that one of the older gentlemen leans over and through the interpreter says, that young man's going to do great things for Christ, but don't trust anything he says right now. And he's like, what? And the old man says, because he hasn't been to prison yet. And he says, as you go around, the believers talk about spending three years in prison here, three years in prison here. And once you'd been to prison and you stood firm for your faith there was an added level of credibility. And he said, even in speaking with the believers, those who hadn't been to prison yet, he said, they spoke in terms of this. When my time comes to go to prison for Jesus, when it's my time to serve in prison and to be persecuted for him, here's what I want to do. Here's how I want to stand firm it blows me away to think about what they face and they're like oh yeah it's gonna happen when the time comes I'm standing firm for Jesus and then part of the message for me with my children is to say Caleb and Anna as we read through and I want them to see and hear the stories of a prison guard who would take human excrement and wipe on a toast and feed it to the believer who's in that prison I want them to hear and read these things and then process what we face or don't face here in America to challenge my children to say the time may very well be coming in america when it's not going to be as easy when there may be more antagonism toward you standing up for jesus and when that time comes your dad is praying for you now that you will stand up for jesus and that we will do what's right i mean it, it breaks my heart to think about how what little we face in persecution here in america and yet how quiet How passive we are. And Nahum is a reminder to us in the context of, of, again, the worldview of what's happening, to be firm, stand strong, be true to God. God will bless. God will watch over. God will protect. But even if he doesn't, and our life is taken from us, Our reward is in him when that time comes. So that reminder to do what's right. And then we see God's sovereign power. Look back uh, in Nahum chapter 1. I know you just went back and now it's going to take you another minute to find it. But Nahum, what page did I say it was on? 783. 783. Did you remember that or is that in your Bible too? Wow. (laughs) I was like, that's pretty impressive. I, was like, I didn't remember what it was. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. See, God's sovereign power. Here's you know, Nehemi- uh, Nahum speaking about Nineveh, what's going to happen, this whole prophetic nature. We've talked about God's sovereignty over time, knowing what happens. People saying, well, these guys, they had to have wrote later because they just tell the events of what took place. And that undermining God's supernatural power to predict the future. They say, well, this book was written in the 300s because they're just telling the story of what happened. No, it happened ahead of time. God is sovereign over the events that take place. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. So it speaks of an overwhelming flood of the Ninevites. Now you remember Robbie's descriptions about the wall—how high this thing was, how thick it was. I mean, this was an impenetrable fortress. The, the moat around, I think, it was like 150 feet across. I mean, it was just this thing was—it was, three set up, it was a massive. Three chariots side by side on top of it. Just this huge, huge fortress. The Syrians were the world power. They were followed by who? Babylonians, y'all are going to get this before we're done, the Babylonians, that's right, the Assyrians, A-B-P, Abel- Assyrians, Babylonians, <laughs> <laughs> Abel- Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, are A-B-P, alright, uh, so the Babylonians come in, they uh, are overcoming Assyria, but they get to Nineveh, the great city, it's a big city, you know how they finally got the victory and made their way into the city of Nineveh? What does verse 8 say? Speaks of what? The Tigris River overflowed and flooded to a point that it got high enough to allow the Babylonians to get warriors and individuals up to the wall to overtake it, to get a foothold in, to conquer the city of Nineveh. Well, what do you know? Look at that. God speaks of the overflowing flood, overrunning them, and then they come in in that way. Uh, chapter 3, verse 11. There will be fire to devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourself like the locust. Multiply yourself like the grasshopper. You inc- Wait a minute. I'm in verse 15. Sorry. Never mind. Chapter 3, verse... What did I say, 11? Seven. Okay, keep up with me. Come on, y'all. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. Going into hiding. Play hide and go seek. You don't want to be found, right? Until time's up. Speaking of going into hiding, when Nineveh was destroyed, was razed to the ground, uh, destroyed, torn down... They discovered the site for the first time in 1842 A.D. So you think about hiding and not being found. When God brought his destruction, leveled the place, and for millennia, over 2,000 years, lay underground, hidden from sight. People went, excavated, found the site there. That is God's sovereign power, to say how you're going to be overrun, that you will be hidden, and when God announces His punishment, when God uh, announces His will, His plans, His purposes, they do come to pass, all right? So there we have it, the book of Nahum. We will pause there until the fall and pick up with my favorite book of the Bible to say, Habakkuk. 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 Habakkuk.